Hi, and welcome back to another episode of In Our Tech Society. Hype around tech is everywhere. You only have to read this week's news about what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried and his crypto empire to see that. It's clearly a force driving the kinds of investments and public support and also sense of inevitability that can help specific technologies grow. It's something that really needs to be properly understood and that's what this episode tries to do. It's also important to bear in mind with what we will be covering in next week's episode about ChatGPT, which has dominated headlines over the last few weeks, and how much of what's being said there is just hype as well. We originally recorded today's episode about a year ago, and some long-term listeners might remember it. But for me, it remains one of the most thought-provoking interviews we've done, and I think it's well worth a listen or another listen. Just briefly, this week I'm busy working on a really important new episode on what ChatGPT could mean for education. There have been a lot of questions and a lot of speculation flying around about this, and not many detailed answers, and I've got a really exciting guest lined up. If you've got any questions you'd be interested to hear us discuss, send us a message on Twitter or email us, the details will be in the description. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this so that you don't miss that episode. Anyway, enough of me. Here's Gemma Milne, a tech journalist, sociologist, and the author of How Hype Obscures the Future. Thanks so much for for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm I, I always introduce myself as a writer and researcher, but it's more just because I don't really know what to call myself. Um, I do a lot of different things, everything from you know wrote a book, uh, writing articles. Um, I'm currently doing a PhD. Um, I do a lot of podcasting, some broadcast video, all sorts of stuff. I um, also do a little bit of consulting with the European Commission and the UK government. But basically, everything that kind of centers around my work is everything to do with science and technology and how it fits into society and kind of asking questions about what kind of science and tech we want what kind of futures we want um and i guess trying to unpick narratives about science and technology that's out there so i tend to say that i'm interested in sort of the political economy of science and tech narrative surrounding and activism within hopefully that's a good enough explanation <laughs> no that's a, that's a really good summary and we'll pick up on a couple of those things in a minute um you wrote a book recently called smoke and mirrors how hype obscures the future and how to see past it which we'll talk about properly in a second but you mentioned in that book kind of how you got into this world of tech mm-hmm. and it's quite an interesting story could you just tell us a little bit about um how you got into it Sure. Um, well, I studied maths at uni and um, I, f- I don't know, I, I I really love maths and I still do. Um, I'm a total nerd for pure maths. So I love like patterns and, um, you know, <laughs> like kind of weird crypto stuff, not the currency, the, the maths part, um, prime numbers, all that sort of thing. Um, but when I did my degree, I was kind of felt a little bit let down by it, if I was honest. Um, I thought I was going to be like, you know, in the movies up at the blackboard, like doing all these complicated Greek letter stuff. Um, and in fact, I found myself a little bit bored and, and not really stimulated and kind of not really sure what to do with it. So um, I was wooed by the investment bank people that came up to St. Andrews and was like, come work for us. You get to have a really cool life and we pay you lots of money. And I was like, all right, let's give this a go and go to London. Um, and after not very long at all, I realized that absolutely was not for, for me. Um, so I decided to Google creative business jobs, London, because, um, 
you know, I love maths and whatnot, but I also do a lot of kind of art and music sort of stuff. So I thought, let's do the other thing for a bit and see if that works out better. Um, but when you Google Creative Business Jobs London, advertising pops up. So I ended up going and working for a big company called Ogilvy & Mather. Um, you know, for anyone who doesn't know advertising well, the founder of Ogilvy & Mather, David Ogilvy, is what the main guy in Mad Men is based on. Um, so it's not like that nowadays, I promise you. But anyway... I ended up there doing kind of account management, project management stuff, which again, I was like, this is not for me at all. I miss the sort of science tech sort of stuff that I I did get in banking, but I do like this sort of more creative media side that I get in advertising. And um, I managed to get a transfer into a different department within the company uh, called Ogilvy Labs, which is basically the innovation team. So my job was to go seek out interesting people, researchers, startup founders, uh, people in government, basically anyone who's working on cutting edge stuff and try and see how we could work together, whether it was doing campaigns together or bringing in new technology to the company or or whatever. So I spent a lot of time going to a lot of conferences. I ended up being invited to speak at some of these conferences about, you know, innovation and advertising and innovation in media. Um, but I realized that I actually, what I really wanted to talk about was science and tech and kind of what should we really why, why should we care about it or what should we be afraid of or how can we do it better um so I ended up doing talks about like why you should care about maths I did a whole talk on Euler's theorem once at an advertising conference um so you know I, I suppose my passion was still coming back to science and tech um but I realized that it really was centered more on you know how do we explore it talk about it and discuss it in the public um so after a couple of years, I got made redundant. They shut the innovation team and basically I became freelance. I started just kind of looking for any interesting work um, that centered around this idea. So I was doing some, I did some teaching uh, of science and tech with students, young students in primary school. Um, I wrote for various different outlets. Um, I did a little bit of like consulting work with some companies where they'd be like, you know, can you go find us some interesting startups in this space? And I'd have to go research and then come back. Um, but I kept being brought back to the idea of writing out my ideas and talking about my ideas. So I essentially just Googled how to become a freelance journalist um, and just spent a lot of time pitching and practicing my writing and putting myself out there as much as I possibly could. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, ended up writing for various bigger outlets, like, you know, The Guardian and Wired, Forbes, BBC, places like that. And then eventually decided actually it'd be really cool to get to write a book. And, and that sort of ended in Smoke and Mirrors. And after that came out, um, it came out in the pandemic and obviously everybody's <laughs> lives changed a little bit. And um, I decided instead of embarking on the next book immediately, I wanted to spend a bit of time in research and that's then why I, I switched to now doing a PhD. But I still do freelance, uh, you know, journalism. I do a lot of podcasting, host a lot of podcasts. Um, our own one's on hiatus at the moment, but I host a lot for other people like the Institute of Physics and Microsoft, places like that. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> that's my weird and wonderful freelance mishmash of a career. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and you get all different kinds of people going into into tech and different routes in, which is always really interesting. Um, you mentioned your PhD, which I know probably isn't finished yet, but it's on no, <laughs> it's on uh, corporate futurism. Mm -hmm. Could you just explain what that actually means for us, and like what what that looks like? 
Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with a bit of background on how I got to that. So when I was writing Smoke and Mirrors, and I mean, as you say, we'll talk about it in a minute, um, it's a lot more focused towards, um, I guess, the general public and how they interact with um, narratives about science tech, so predominantly in the media, for instance. Um, and it's focused very much on Yes, the people that put out those narratives, but a lot more about what it means to receive them and criticize them and, and how to sort of place yourself within um, science and tech. But one of the big questions that I had when I was writing was, what's the responsibility of those putting out messages? Um, and that, I include myself in that, right? Uh, writers, thought leaders, consultants, journalists, um, mm -hmm. leaders of companies, uh, you know, Elon Musk on Twitter, you know, anyone that's kind of putting out um what might be seen as trusted information about science and tech and what kind of impact does that have? And therefore, do they understand their own role um, in influencing how science and tech move? So it was really interesting, this idea of responsibility of people who talk about the future. And that kind of landed me on thinking about people who actually have a job called futurist, um, who, you know, literally sell um, ideas about the future or sell methodologies around trying to work out what the future might hold. And I'm particularly interested in the private sector just because I've spent most of my career there. And I also think that a lot of academia doesn't tend to focus on it quite as much as a lot of focus on government and sort of public narratives around science and tech, but there's not really as much focus on what happens within companies. And I think a lot of that is an access problem, to be honest, but I had that access and I was like, well, I'm interested in these people that literally sell these services. So these, this is anyone from consultants that go into companies saying, you know, I'm going to do work with you on the future of automation to help you make decisions on what you should invest in as a company, or even just people going in and doing like lunch and learn sessions on the future of AI. Um, I'm particularly interested in people who literally use the job title futurist. Um, you could put people like myself in a bucket of futurists because we talk about the future <laughs> but I certainly don't call myself futurists and futurists have a whole sort of um there's a whole of specific methodologies used you can get trained up in futurism you can get a degree in it um there's professional accreditations there's professional associations the association of professional futurists and and, and others so I'm interested in these people that I guess I mean it's, it sounds harsh but they decide that they have the authority to be able to sell ideas about the future to private businesses and I'm very interested in essentially what the power dynamics are of that what does it mean to have that information to sell it so there's a sort of asymmetry of information which is a big issue within like consulting for instance you know you're selling information others don't have um, so what does it mean for someone to have information about the future that others don't and what does it mean for private businesses whose you know at the end of the day goal is profit um, to be making decisions about the future for all. So, um, you know, when futurists talk about, um, you know, looking into and building what they call desired or preferred futures. And I find this a really interesting statement because it's like, well, preferred by who and desired by who? And the minute you put that into the frame of a private business, well, obviously you can, it's so easy to start to see where problems might arise. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in that, that group of people and, and that profession and the sort of market of selling and buying information about the future so that's what I'm looking at that sounds fascinating I mean because because you can see all kinds of people making speculations about lots of things with with technology and like are the robots going to take our jobs are they not are they yes. going to take them to some extent um 
just briefly, what kind of methodologies are we talking about that makes this, at least in theory, at least not just purely speculative? Yeah, well, it's a big question, but then the, the sort of community of or sort of world of futurism, there's so many different methodologies and they all, some people swear by some, some swear by others. So there's there's all different ones. There's one like the futures cone, for instance, that kind of, if you, well, if you imagine the shape of a cone looks out towards the future and you start kind of looking at all different types of scenarios that might happen there's one called um back casting where you sort of take a scenario and work backwards you know i'm so described any futurist is listening to this, sorry i'm completely um messing up the description of all your methodologies but there's lots of different ways of doing it some of them are very data driven some are more kind of shall we say sociological in the way that they work um some are I would say some futurists base a lot more on their own expertise and their own sort of um, experience in a certain sector. Um, others will utilize lots of research resources. Um, others will use, you know, sheer data numbers. Um, so there's all different ways of doing it. And one of the things I'm kind of interested in is what sort of type of futurist or type of futurism you know data-driven futurism versus perhaps afrofuturism or um indigenous futurism which perhaps isn't quite as um focused on measurement um at times what tends to get bought by corporates and therefore what tends to have a little bit more power in the private sector so um i mean yeah what kind of methods are there so many different ones and they all sort of hold different kinds of power and there's lots of different debate within the kind of futurism community as to which are good which are outdated which are simplistic i mean most good futurists would utilize lots of different ones they wouldn't just you know have a futures cone and be like this is what you should do <laughs> you know there would be a lot of different inputs um but the point being is that some of them are far more shall we say data-driven algorithmic and others are a lot more kind of experience-based or discussion-based or, or whatever that sounds fascinating and i'd genuinely be interested to read your phd when you're finished um, <laughs> so your your book is all about hype and how <laughs> hype obscures the future how we see past it um what do you mean by hype just to start us off yeah, this is, you know, this is interesting. You'd think this would be a really simple question to answer. Um, and I thought that when I set out writing the book, but actually everyone seems to have a different definition. So some people would say it's exaggerated publicity. Um, some people would say it's sort of like fair game marketing. Other people would say exaggeration bordering on lying um, in terms of messaging. So um, I sort of see it more, if you think about a, a sort of analogy to kind of um, understand where I'm coming from with it, if you think about going to a magic show and um, you you walk in and by entering the theatre, knowing that you're going to watch a magician, you haven't accidentally walked into the wrong theatre, you know you're going in, you are sort of consenting to be fooled. You're saying to the magician, go for it, try and fool me, try and deliberately mislead me. Um, if you're you know, non-consensual fooling is, is when you're lied to. So you are not, not knowingly misled. Uh, someone has like tricked you somehow. The way I think about hype um, is that it's a way of putting a message out there that is very focused on grabbing attention, not on giving information. So it's only focused on grabbing attention and sometimes can lead to accidental fooling. So some people can take the wrong impression from it and they can be pointed in the wrong direction uh, in terms of, you know, the, their attention has been gathered, but then they've added on bits of information to end up with the wrong conclusion that's not necessarily 
you know, inherent in the message that they've read, but perhaps the emotion evoked in the, in the message has been what's, um, what's made them think it. So an example, for instance, would be, I mean, you mentioned earlier, robots are going to steal our jobs, right? That's a really good example of a hyped up narrative. Um, it's, it captures your attention, right? You, you hear robots are going to steal their jobs and you feel a lot of different emotions, maybe fear, and maybe you think it's funny, maybe you disbelieve it. Um, maybe you feel worried um, about your own career, about someone else's. Um, Maybe you kind of feel angry towards the robots, thinking how dare they, and so on and so forth. So this is this is a narrative that that kind of captures attention. But you could very easily reframe it to, you know, corporate leaders are making active decisions to replace human labor with automated machines, and you're essentially saying the same thing. But of course, that has a very different way of, um, I guess, going through someone's mind. And if you were to read that, perhaps that probably wouldn't capture attention. It's pretty clunky. But if you were to look at it, you're going to have completely different ideas than if you read and listen to robots are going to steal a job, even though they're both saying automation is coming. That's essentially the message. So what Hype does is it captures attention. And if you perhaps are made to feel a particular emotion about it or you associate it with something you already feel or know, you can end up with the wrong conclusion and particularly with robots are going to steal your job you can end up with the conclusion that you know robots are the bad guys coming to get us when i would argue the conclusion should much be much more be towards um decisions made by corporate leaders for instance i would say that that's the wrong conclusion to get to so um that's probably quite a roundabout way of saying it and i think you know if you read the book you'll probably see that i don't really try and define it really solidly because i think it's it's quite a malleable term some people say what's the difference between hype and lying and i would say well lying is deliberate <laughs> whereas hype is is not necessarily you're not necessarily trying to mislead but the point is you're trying to capture attention and sometimes that's done irresponsibly and then is that is that dangerous is that what what was it that kind of concerned you that provoked you to write the book i mean initially it was just i felt that people were getting the wrong ideas about stuff you know i would go to parties or I'd speak to my extended family and they say, oh, you work in science and tech. Um, you know, are we going to, what do you think about um, the sentient AI? Uh, is it coming in two years time? I read, I, I saw a headline saying that we're going to have sentient robots in two years. And I was like, no. <laughs> and also, wh where did you get that from? And why do you think that? And what what specifically do you mean by sentiment and sentient and so on and so forth? So there was sort of a frustration with a people coming to me and seeing me as this expert when to some extent I am, but I'm also not. Um, and also, I guess people feeling perhaps a little bit out of control and uninformed and, and whatnot when it came to various different messages. And also just frankly, reading the media coverage of science and tech as somebody who's in that sector, um, I don't know how you feel, but I get very frustrated sometimes when I read headlines about particular things. I'm just like, that's so obviously misleading it's not entirely untrue but it's completely misleading um you know obviously the, the standard ones are the daily mail saying if you drink a cup of coffee you're going to live 10 years longer you know i mean it's it might be that the specific study that looked at three mice um, that very particular dosage of caffeine happened to live a little bit longer but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to live longer if they have coffee so it's it's that sort of obvious thing but at the same time it's still happening no matter how much people complain about the way we talk about science tech so it started there but then when I started looking at it a bit more I sort of started to see some what I thought is 
I mean, dangerous is, is a strong word because some people would say it's just words. It's not really that dangerous. But then at the other end of it, we say, well, the pen is mightier than the sword and words do matter. So you could argue that hype can be very dangerous. But one of the things that I think a lot about is this idea of hype creating the conditions for technology that we might not want. So what I mean by that is if a message goes out that says, you know, this company has created an AI that's going to make self-driving cars a reality in two years time right let's just say that's the sort of hyped up message or that's the or it's going to come in a very near future perhaps maybe it's a bit more vague than that um that sort of hyped up message that gets repeated and is sort of reinforced by various different kinds of people um maybe not completely i don't want to say not completely true but it's perhaps exaggerated because that company might be trying to get investment or they might be trying to get people on board, they might want to get support. And you can start to kind of see people talking about that message perhaps more broadly. So you start seeing um, more magazines talking about self-driving cars coming in the really near future. Um, you start having government agencies creating um you know, committees to make sure they start building the infrastructure for self-driving cars. You start having um, in mainstream media people, you know, talking about how they feel, how they, they would feel about being in a self-driving car and so on and so forth. So these hyped up messages start to create a society where we just assume that it's coming. And it's this sort of deterministic um, idea around a particular kind of technology, as opposed to questioning, is this actually coming and do we even want it? You know, um, so what I mean by that is hype can sometimes elevate and create the world for the technology to exist. Because in the end, we can't have self-driving cars. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the laws. We don't have the demand from consumers and so on and so forth. And all of that at the end of the day comes about from narratives, from people believing certain things about the future and so on and so forth. And I think that that can be dangerous, particularly when it's technology that ends up not being something that's positive for society. Um, it also can massively distract conversation. We talked about the, um, you know, robots are going to steal our jobs. Why are we not actually talking about the decisions made by corporate leaders? Why are we not holding businesses and those in power to account instead we're kind of talking about terminator and these scary robots that are going to come um snatch our jobs it's the same sort of narratives um that's used um when demonizing immigrants for instance this idea of coming from afar and taking things away from us um as opposed to actually going no it's that particular person that leads that company that has made that decision and so on and so forth so that sort of conversation distraction i think can be quite dangerous for society um, we've obviously talked about misunderstanding already. There's also a level of inaction when it comes to hype. So if you talk about um, the sort of narrative that technology is going to save us, that can sort of dissuade people from making other kinds of changes. And by that, I don't mean just individuals. I mean, governments and, and people who are able to create big changes. So a big, an example that I always like to go to is... Um, around aging anti-aging technology um and this idea that we can extend life uh beyond 80 years or you know into the hundreds and so on and so forth and that's really exciting if you're already in a developed society living in a particular part of it that has you know a really high average age of death of like 80 but what if you live in a community where the average age of death is 50 um a technological solution is not going to raise um, the age of death for that community is most likely going to be 
funding from government um, and equality uh, across education and access to health and healthy food and things like that. So this idea of focusing on technological solutions um, can sometimes create inaction in other areas. Um, but really, the final one as well is around creating like bad expectations. So if you have people expecting a certain thing to happen in the future and then it either doesn't happen or it happens in a different kind of way, you start to lose trust, um, which can lead to loss of investment, um, loss of lawmaking, loss of public um, kind of trust and opinion. So for instance, if you say, oh, we're going to, you know, the perfect example would be in the fusion and the fusion sector, which I write about in the book, where they kept making claims about this, energy solution that was going to get it's happening it's happening it's happening and then every time there's a public demonstration even though the public demonstration tended to be relatively successful from a science perspective it was seen as a failure because they hadn't delivered on the full-scale cheapening of energy for the whole of the of society and so uh, you know you started losing investment in that space public opinion went down and so on and so forth so it's this idea of like um creating bad expectations which ultimately can be really bad for the development of science and tech so um that's quite a rambling answer sorry but there's, there's quite a lot in there that i think ultimately we, we forget that narratives have a lot of power and in a lot of different ways no it's, it's a fascinating answer um and I've always been really interested how kind of narratives can become self-fulfilling in a way. And you get that yes. a lot with like um, when the stock market crashes, et cetera. But I've never yes. really thought of it in the context of, of technology like that. That's that's exactly it. I, and, you know, it's funny because I was originally, you know, years ago, I mean, I, I worked in an investment bank. I was interested. I'm very interested in the stock markets and I have been for a long time. Um, but not in terms of um, actually trading, I'm not any good at that, but it's more I'm interested exactly in this point of like, what can you create by making certain decisions about moving money and how can that happen on small and large scales and how does that actually impact the future? And something I actually was thinking about, um, I just recently subscribed to Bloomberg again. Um, I had it years ago and I haven't had a subscription for years at my friend just got promoted there and I thought oh, I should really get a subscription anyway I signed up and I started getting these emails from them you know welcome to Bloomberg and all that and I realized at the bottom of the um of the email I'm assuming it's like the Bloomberg brand at the moment or something I'm not entirely sure but it says before you change the world Bloomberg and I find this really interesting as a um like a marketing thing for Bloomberg because obviously it's being positioned as this idea of like, you know, people who read Bloomberg are change makers, they are the businessmen, they're the financiers, they're the entrepreneurs, they're these people that are going out and changing the world. Um, and to make it even better, read Bloomberg to get your insights, right? That's probably like internally how Bloomberg talks about it from a marketing standpoint. But I read it as this sort of like cautionary thing. Like before you make any decisions, you better check Bloomberg, you know, better just make sure that what you're doing, this one action that might seem small is actually going to have quite large impact. Um, and actually you're responsible for it too, before you change the world, Bloomberg. I thought it was really interesting kind of, I don't think that's how... Um, particularly when it talks we talk about narratives out there and making small business or government decisions we don't really talk about like the fact that that can have these um big massive impacts can be as you said sort of self-fulfilling when it comes to narratives um and we certainly don't talk about it from like a blame perspective like taking responsibility for what you're seeing or what you're doing um so anyway that was just something i, I was thinking about this morning <laughs> no, it's, it's a really interesting comment and 
I was just going to ask you because um, you mentioned like different media companies and the Daily Mail isn't the best, obviously, but the uh, kind of popular media tech sections don't tend to be particularly good. Um, hmm. But is it also, I mean, who's who's creating this hype? Is it also advertisers? And obviously your, yeah. your work then goes into corporate futurism. Is, yeah. Are they also kind of playing a role? Is it all of these people working together or what's going on here? Well, I, I don't think it's people, they're not, I don't think it's a conspiracy. They're not all, you know, working together, I would say, but it's certainly <laughs> lots of different, <laughs> you can imagine they're all around a big, uh, a big long table like uh, Putin and his people. Anyway, um, no, it's not, it's not like that. Um, or maybe it is, we don't know, hey-ho, but the point I'm making is it's lots of different actors, right? So yeah, it's not just media. I mean, at the end of the media, get their ideas from somewhere, right? From sources, from PR companies, sending them emails, um, from the published documents of the places that they're covering whether that's government or businesses or universities or so on and so forth so for me it's anybody that's putting a message out for the purpose of trying to capture attention um so that could be you know a deck that you're writing um for a public presentation it could even be a deck you're writing for an investor meeting um you know because you're trying to get investment in something and that could be your research it could be your company it could be whatever i mean there's a sort of standing joke within research that you know I mean, it's not really a joke, but it's sort of a dark joke. You put cancer in your funding application, you're more likely to get the money, regardless of how far away your basic science research is from actual, um, you know, cancer treatment applications, right? So there's 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 lots of different um, kind of people putting messages out for the purposes of grabbing attention, which ultimately is because they want something else, whether it's investment, um, people to agree with them when it comes to like campaigning or PR um, or cu new customers or, or even just getting someone to like you, you know, <laughs> you know, even people retweeting Elon Musk and saying he's great. You know, that's that's a form of hype, I would say you're hyping up the person, you're hyping up the image. So um, I know that sounds like I'm saying everyone and no one. But the point is, is that it isn't just one person or one group of people that you can just slap a regulation on and say you're not allowed to say certain things anymore. I mean, we have that with the Advertising Standards Authority. Um, the point is, is that it's a, it's kind of inherent in the society that we live in. I mean, I, I, I kind of hate the term the attention economy. I think it feels a little bit, <laughs> I don't know, a little bit um, too overly simplistic. But if you think about this so-called attention economy that we live in, everybody's trying to wrestle for attention whether that's on social media whether that's from a campaigning perspective from a money perspective so on and so forth so we're sort of used to trying to grab people's attention in some way and that sort of um i guess it's 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 create again creating the conditions for hype right because people feel that they have to exaggerate they have to um amp up what they're saying in order to get people to click to buy to listen or, or whatever that might be so everyone from yeah the daily mail trying to get people to click on their articles so that they get advertising revenue all the way through to startup founders uh tweeting things or putting things in their decks all the way through to your you know friendly neighborhood tech nerd who posts every you know posts their opinions on facebook um you know we've i mean part of the thing in the book is we've all got a sort of responsibility to seek out hype and to think about messages but it's also thinking about what messages are we putting out ourselves and i i wasn't i wasn't meaning to imply that there's kind of this cabal working together but um <laughs> i like the idea though i think it's funny <laughs> mostly with newspapers like the daily mail there's kind of with the way that online advertising works they have to get clicks to stay afloat so their their headline has to be at least to some extent 
it has to grab you to get you to click on it and you see that a lot and it gets a lot of criticism but there's there's a, there's nothing particularly nefarious behind it but what do you think the the role of journalists is here in kind of trying to produce a headline that's not misleading but also it has to serve that purpose as well yeah it's a really interesting question um first of all i mean a lot of journalists don't actually you know individual journalists don't have any choice in the headlines it's normally written by either editors or the people who are in charge of of getting the clicks audience development and so on and so forth so um you know if you're a freelance writer you don't always have a say in what the headline is and this is sometimes um an issue you'll see people you know tweeting i mean i obviously follow a lot of writers they'll tweet their article and say i didn't write the headline but please read my piece (laughs) Um, so not to sort of take the responsibility away from a journalist because, you know, you can certainly push back <laughs> and, you know, depending on your relationship with the editor or whatever, that, you know, there's responsibility there. But I, the reason I'm sort of pointing that out is I think that we some, I, I don't necessarily think that it's all on the journalist to say we need to make sure we write this perfect full information headline because you're right it's not going to work like people are not going to click on a big convoluted annoying to read headline they're also not going to click on something that's vague um you know you kind of have to ask a question or make a statement that feels i don't want to say extreme but feels tantalizing and interesting or scary or emotional in some sense in order to get people to read where i think that we need a little bit more um I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but movement in terms of how we think about these things is that we have to accept the fact that headlines are there only to grab attention (laughs) and they are not the full story. And there, yes, I do think that there's a role for those who are writing the headlines to be a little bit more cautious about what they're doing and, and, and remember that lots of people only read the headline. So, you know, when you're writing headline, think what happens if someone doesn't read this article and they only read the headline? What are they going to take from this? Is that misleading? Maybe I shouldn't write it. But by the same token, I think when we are scrolling through Twitter or Facebook or whatever and we see a headline, we need to not take it at face value. We need to stop in our tracks and go, oh, that's caught my attention. Why is that caught my attention? Is it because it's something I particularly care about? Is it because I disagree? Is it because I think it's brilliant? What's the sort of reason that it stopped in my tracks? And maybe I should either now go read it and think about it properly, or even just consider the very idea that it's captured my attention and why that might be. And that seems like a lot of work. Um, you know, I know that <laughs> not everybody's going to do that every day when they're, you know, on the tube or commuting to work and, and reading headlines. But the point I'm trying to make here is that I think there's a responsibility to knowing the reality of headline writing. We all know that headlines are written to capture attention. So why are we believing them at face value? Why are we quoting them when we talk to other people instead of going, oh, there was this headline that captured my attention, but when you actually read the article, this is what it said. How interesting. Or maybe if you read a headline and don't read the article, maybe don't talk about it (laughs) because it's probably not the full story. So again, not taking away the the responsibility of the journalist. There is, I mean, I think there's a huge responsibility from journalism as to tell more system-wide stories, for instance. So instead of just saying, you know, here's a tech startup, they're doing this thing, isn't it interesting? Going, well, hold on a second. What ecosystem do they exist in? What does the power dynamics look like in it? What's the regulation in this? What's the economics? What are the various countries that are impacted? Who are the owners? You know, a lot more 
deeper work done when talking about science tech solutions. There's way too much parroting of PR um, tech, PR, you know, releases, basically. Um, so there's, I think there's more responsibility there. But from a headline perspective, I think it comes more from the readers in terms of knowing that at the end of the day, this is to capture attention. We shouldn't take it at face value. And just as one final question, um, you said you're very passionate about maths and <laughs> kind of how do you like, there's a lot of like nonsense in, in the tech sections of popular kind of newspapers, which as mm. you say is often, it, it is often just hype, but how do we kind of engage people in tech sec in, in the tech section without it just being hype? I think it goes back to this point around system stories. Um, I think it's about, well, maybe we shouldn't have a tech section for a start. I mean, what do we even mean by tech nowadays? Um, it's an inherent part of our society. Most societies, you can't really do anything without technology of some kind. Um, so, for instance, if you're going to have, you know, I don't know, an economics section, there's going to be a lot of technology inherent in that section, whether it's the stock markets and all the data that goes into that, or whether it's the, you know, I don't know, sensors that have captured information about traffic congestion that's now impacted some government decision around Department of Transport funding. I don't know. The point, <laughs> that sounded very convoluted, but the point is, is that technology and science are, are really quite um, inherent in many other areas. So if we're going to have a separate science and technology section um maybe it's about pulling more of those other bits into it and what i mean by that is instead of trying to kind of wow people with the complexity of science and tech and going this is how it works um starting with something a lot more mm, i don't want to say human because I, I hate that idea in journalism that we have to write these human stories um but instead of writing about this new fancy widget, why are we not writing about um, the society in which it exists or the political economy around it or the energy usage around it or the government policies that have just come out? And I know that I'm probably making it sound a little bit boring, but to me, I find the stories of kind of how science and tech exists within society far more tantalizing and i think far more interesting for a broader public audience than a sort of how this works or isn't the inventor such an amazing genius which a lot of the articles in science and tech tend to be um and i think the other point here as well is that it stops people feeling like it's this complicated thing that they used to do at school and now they're sort of trying to keep up with it <laughs> or you know if you are if you're a sort of self-confessed science or tech nerd you're like indulging in this cool hobby or something right um if we tell these sort of system stories and talk about what's actually happening in science and tech right now as opposed to trying to teach somebody something like you know this is how a volcano works instead why don't we talk about what are the debates that are actually happening within the science and tech circles that exist at the moment they're not discussing you know how it works they're discussing the politics of it or funding around it or um this big you know, theoretical debate that has certain implications and so on and so forth. And I don't think we welcome the general public into those kind of discussions very much. If you look at what sort of in general tech coverage versus what's talked about at the conferences for those that work and study in the field, it's so different. And I'm not saying that we should have technical, really difficult 
conversations happening in mainstream media, but we absolutely should be sharing what are these um, tensions or discussions that are happening within the field because ultimately that's more interesting and it's way more impactful in terms of getting people to sort of understand the role that science and tech happen and have in society as a whole as opposed to it being this separate little you know whimsy gadget gizmo thing that's kind of interesting and cool and let me tell you how the electronics work do you see what i mean yeah absolutely um and any listeners that are interested in following more of your work what's the best way Oh, probably Twitter at the moment. That's probably where I'm most up to date. I do have a newsletter, which you can find on my website um, and probably a link on my Twitter as well. Um, but it's on hiatus at the moment because I recently had a baby. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter and you'll be able to get all the updates of the various different things I'm up to on there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Gemma. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thanks, Paddy. Really appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would really help us out if you could leave us a five star rating on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. You won't have to write anything and it will literally take you two clicks, but it helps us reach a lot more people. If you like this episode, check out No Will at the Top, which is something we did earlier this year discussing what drives investment in tech and how we can try to improve how tech companies incorporate ethics into their AI based products. I'll see you next week to talk about ChatGPT and education.